So please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We are at the very end. We're in chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 24 today. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 963. So we finally made it. 15 months, 50 sermons, and we are now at the end of our series in 1 Corinthians. And today, this last sermon, this is, this is the final greeting in this letter. And this is the portion, really, that most people skip over, right? And, and as we've mentioned, this has been the case for the entire chapter. The climax of this letter was chapter 15. But even so, we've done seven ch- sermons after that climax in this flyby chapter, chapter 16. But as we've seen, this entire chapter, there are nuggets in this chapter, that are applicable not only to the Corinthians, but also applicable to us as Christians living today. So let's dive into this final sermon, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 19 to 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church and their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your scripture. We thank you for your word. This Reformation Day that we remember the the discovery of of the doctrines of grace and foundation of them is all authority comes from your word. So, Father, we thank you for this, and Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word. I pray for your spirit to be with me, that I will speak your word, that it will be true. I pray that I will speak it clear. I will speak, I will speak it with the power of the Holy Spirit. But above all, Father, we will see you, that each one of us will be changed, and you will be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my, fa- my favorite part about attending the PCA General Assembly is, is the worship services. And any of you who have ever been to one of the General Assemblies, you will know that the worship services are, are amazing. And we have three different services, and the three different services are different. Some of them are very traditional. Some of them are very contemporary. Some of them are blend. And the speakers are very different. Some of them are, are professors or doctors or scholars. Some are very passionate speakers, and, and some, some are from urban settings. And it's really, it's really an amazing time, especially when you get about 3,000 people together all singing, all worshiping the Lord together. So that is clearly my favorite part. <clears throat> my second favorite part of General Assembly is not the work of the Assembly. And that's an important work, and it's often, not always, but often interesting work. Sometimes it's, it's tedious, sometimes it's exhausting, and it's very important that we do this work. But that's not my second favorite part. My second favorite part of General Assembly is the reunions. It's the reunions. This is where, where I meet my friends from seminary. We get together uh, people in PCA churches that I've worshipped with in Virginia and North Carolina and really across the country. People who've come here to visit us when we had the, the, the storms and from other PCA churches. I get to connect with them at General Assembly. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I know Nathan got to connect with some of his friends from RUF in college as, as well as some of, the church, some of the people he served with in the church in Birmingham. So it's really just a very sweet time. And it's really easy for us to forget how connected we are as a church, especially in places like Albany, where here in Albany, I am the only PCA teaching elder literally within a 40-mile radius here. I mean, just think about that. I'm the only PCA ruling elder. And if you think if the, of all of southwest Georgia, there are only eight PCA 
teaching elders. We have one here in Albany, one in Americus, one in Tifton, one in Thomasville. Valdosta gets two, and the only reason they get two is because one of them is an RUF pastor at, the, at the Valdosta State College. And then Perry, they get two as well. That's it, eight of us in all of this part of the state. It's a small band of brothers that we are. <clears throat> now, thankfully, we're not the only Christians here. There are many Christians here in, in, in Albany, and there are many uh, um, you know, good, faithful, conservative Christians. But the truth is, I'm the only conservative, reformed Presbyterian minister. I'm, I'm an oddity here. Really, when I, when I hang out with my friends here in, in, in Albany, we have lots of Methodists, we have Baptists, we have conservative Methodists and conservative Baptists. We even have conservative reformed Baptists. But again, I am the oddity. You know, as a, as a pedo Baptist baptizing children, they, they, they don't quite know <clears throat> what to, to make of me. And I, I am probably the only conservative, Bible-believing, reformed, Presbyterian, paleo Baptist minister in all of Albany. And Albany is not unique, really, for the PCA. This situation is really what most PCA teaching elders go through. And, and that is why General Assembly is so encouraging. It's like we realize that there are people like us out there. We're not, we're not all alone. And these reunions are, are, are always sweet. And even though we don't see each other, we see each other once every couple of years, uh, there's still this rich fellowship. It's founded on Christ. And, and it comes naturally. Well, these last six verses that we look at in this letter, at the end of this letter, this is what we're looking at today. This is like a reunion in a letter. Paul is reminding the Corinthian church, this, this immature, this struggling church, he's reminding them that they're not alone. They're not alone. They are part of something much, much bigger than themselves. And this perspective shift is necessary, lest they and us get myopic in our view and get, get uh, really discouraged in our isolation. So in verse 19, Paul says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. So these churches in Asia, these are churches that Paul had started. These are all the churches that Paul had visited. And they know the Corinthians. They care for them. They're praying for them. Just like we talked with, with Kari, we're praying for the pits. They are, we're praying for the church. And think about how encouraging this is. That these churches, these churches know me. These churches love me. All these churches are praying for me. Just think how encouraging that is. I remember how humbled I was um, you know, when we would get letters and donations. Again, when we had those storms here. Throughout the denomination, I would get letters from people throughout the denomination, throughout the presbytery, saying, we're praying for you in Albany. We're, we're in this, sending us gifts and, and sending us people here to help. I remember how encouraging it was. And I remember one, one weekend when Lynn and Bonnie and I, we were in Atlanta for a dog show, and we weren't able to make it back to Northgate Sunday morning. We stopped and we worshipped at North Macon Presbyterian Church, a, a church in our presbytery. Uh, Chuck and Jackie Wachob, who were members here, they're members there. We got to visit with them. And that church gave a big donation to Northgate to help uh, with the relief efforts in Albany. And I got an opportunity to, pre to, to speak with them personally, to thank them, to let them know how the, the, the people who were helped with the gifts that they had given. And this was an encouragement both to them and to us. But not only does Paul remind the Corinthians that they're part of something much bigger than their own church and their own city, and not only does he remind them of the, the spiritual power of this connection, he then makes the connection personal. And take a look at the next part of verse 19. It says, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. See, the Corinthians would have recognized these names, these people. Aquila and Prisca or, or, or Priscilla. Do these names sound familiar? 
We read about them in our New Testament reading from Acts. They lived in Corinth. They were there the same time that Paul was when he started his church. As we're told in, in Acts 18, Paul stayed with them and they worked together. That's the three of them. Their, their trade was tent makers. And Aquila and Priscilla, they were part of the team that planted the Corinthian church. So it's kind of like us here at Northgate. If I, if I came up and I read a letter from Wayne Curls, and, and those of you who remember, Wayne Curls was the pastor who founded and planted this church 42 years ago. And in the letter, he says, David King sends you greetings, and Ken Cross sends you greetings, and Richard Smith sends you greetings. And for those of you who don't recognize those names, these were the men who served as pastors over the last 40 years in this church. And we don't know how long <clears throat> Aquila and Priscilla served in Corinth. Paul's writing this letter from Ephesus, and we know from later in Acts 18 uh, that this was in Ephesus where Aquila and Priscilla met and, uh, <clears throat> and instructed Apollos. So it's likely that Aquila and, Pris- and Priscilla and the church that met in their house were currently also in Ephesus with Paul when he wrote this letter. <clears throat> and it's also possible that even the members of this church and the members of this house would have been known to the Corinthians. Some of them may have gone with them. So their names are not mentioned here. They are unknown to us, but they may have been known and loved by the Corinthians. And notice the intimacy that we see in this fellowship among the the, the Christians. Look at how Paul instructs them to greet one another in, in verse 20. It says, all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. A holy kiss. We don't normally do that. We don't see people kissing one another here. We kind of get a little weirded out. That's not our custom. Right at the end of the service, we don't, we, you know, I might give you a handshake or something, but I'm not going to kiss you. Don't, don't get insulted if I don't give you a holy kiss at the end. But what does this mean? Well, I think what he's talking about is it's, it's an intimate form of greeting. See, it's a holy kiss, not a romantic kiss, not a sexual kiss, but it also conveys genuine affection for one another. See, it's a type of, of kiss we would give a member of our family. It's something that would be reserved for our kin, right? our clan, those co- closest to us. And I think in our modern and our, our individuals and our, our highly mobile society, we're having fewer children, uh, smaller families. It's, it's easy for us to, to miss the significance of this instruction. Because I think up until just very recently, our strongest relations would have been people in our own family. And I'm not talking about our own immediate nuclear family. I'm talking about extended families, cousins, uncles, aunts. We would have had this big clan. In some cases, it was even expected that people would marry within this larger family. You would marry these distant cousins. Right? The Jewish people, nation of Israel. It's really one family. They're all descendants of Jacob and his 12 sons. And these family relations, they were the closest of all human relations. The bonds among family members among one, one's clan, they were the, the strongest of our natural bonds. And what this instruction that Paul is giving is that the Christians, as Christians, we now have an even stronger relationship. We have an even stronger relationship than this natural relationship. The relationship among believers supersedes even that among family members. The supernatural supersedes the natural. Well, what about this kiss? Is this, is this a cultural or is this a universal? Right? Is it okay to, to, to greet each other with a holy hug or a holy side hug, as some Christians do, or, or a holy uh, you know, hearty handshake, or, or maybe in COVID time, a, a holy fist bump? Is, is that okay? Well, I think the principle here is the closeness of the relationship. It's not necessarily the form or, or, or the expression. I, th- I think the expression does reveal something, but it reveals the, the, the closeness of this relationship. And it's not absolute. There, there are some people where we're where kissing and, and that type of, that type of uh, uh, shines of affection are much more natural. 
I remember when I, when I was growing up in New Jersey. I, I don't know if it's just the time or, or just where we lived or, or maybe because we're an Italian family. We were just a much more kissy type of people. We would, we would go see family members that we'd see maybe once or twice in my life. They'd come over and they'd give me a big kiss. I, I, my dad even kissed the governor of New Jersey. <laughs> I, I, seriously, he kissed the governor of New Jersey. He, he knew her. They were, they were involved in politics and he knew her for years before she was governor. So he goes up and kisses the governor of New Jersey. So, but that's not the, the normal thing that we have. And, and again, I don't want you to be uh, offended if I'm not going to kiss you at the end of the service. I don't want anyone coming up to me. No, I'm not going to kiss anyone at the end of this. Because I think, I think the main thing is there's an affection. There's a sweetness. There's a fellowship. There's a, it's like family. That's what we see here. <clears throat> Let me move on beyond, beyond the kiss here. Another important fact about this, this final greeting that we see in, in verse 21 is Paul wrote this greeting with his own hands, with his own hands. So this both personalizes and, and authenticates the message. Now think about it if you, you get a newsletter in the mail, like, like you know, the pits as, as, as missionaries, um, or you, know, you, get, you get a newsletter. Usually they're, they're printed up, but sometimes you'll have something handwritten just to, to you personally. You know, John, thank you, thank you for your support. Thank you, Northgate, for your support. Those are the types of things. So this is what we're seeing. It, it, it personalizes it, but it also authenticates the message as well. In ancient times, a person like Paul would not actually write the entire letter. He would use a thing called an amanuensis, which is it's like a secretary. It's a person who, who wrote the letter. They would, they would dictate the letter. They would make copies of the letter. You know, we didn't have computers. You couldn't have a copy. And sometimes you'd send the same, same letter to multiple people. So these secretaries, they would, they would write down the letter. So that's what, what most likely Paul just wrote this one part. The rest of it was written by someone else. So who was Paul's amanuensis or his, his secretary? Well, if we look at the first part, the first verse of this letter, 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, it gives us some clues of it. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Well, a lot of times when I'm talking about that, I'm not mentioning Sosthenes. Sosthenes was probably not the one who wrote this. This were Paul's words, but Sosthenes was most likely the amanuensis. He was most likely the person who physically wrote this letter. And when Paul writes this greeting in his own hands, this again is both like a signature. It's attesting that, yes, this is my letter. These are my words. And it's his authority in this. But it's also a personal message. This last verses are a personal message that he has given to the Corinthians. And this personalized message, it may have been this entire section we're looking at, but it's more likely that it's really only these last three verses, verses 22 to 24 of the letter. We can't know for sure. We don't, we don't have the letter. We can't look and compare the, uh, the, the handwriting, but that's most likely what it is. So assuming that Paul's personalized message is these last three verses, let's look at this message. Let's see what this personal message he has. We're going to begin with verses 23 and 24. And these verses are fairly common conclusion to a letter. Verse 23 is a benediction, literally means a good word. We are very familiar with benediction. I give a benediction every week. It is, it is a, a pronouncement or a bestowing of a blessing. That's basically what it is. It is a blessing that is given to the congregation. Well, Paul concludes his letter by pronouncing a blessing on the Corinthian church. And this blessing is the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Seems common, seems simple, but just think how powerful these words are. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. A powerful blessing. This is really what we all need. Apart from grace, again, as, as the Reformation, as we saw, apart from grace, each one of us is dead in our sins. Each one of us has no way of coming to God. We need this grace. 
What Paul is doing is he is praying for them. He is begging them. He is begging God to, to give them, to pour out his grace on the Corinthians. This final verse, Paul, here uh, that we see, Paul reminds the Corinthians of his love for them in Christ. It's kind of the way we would sign a modern letter, right? You know, love Paul. That's kind of what he's saying. He's given his love in Christ. But I think the most interesting part of this personalized message, and probably the most interesting part of this entire passage, I think is verse 22. Because this gives us something a little different. This gives us something a little unique. So let's start off with this last sentence in verse 22. The ESV translates this as, Our Lord, come. The Greek here is actually a transliteration of an Aramaic word. And this word will probably sound familiar to some of you. The word is Maranatha. Have you heard of that? Maranatha? We, we actually even have uh, Maranatha music right here, a little praise guy that we have, Maranatha music. So it's, it's a, a common word that we see, English word in a Christian context. And it basically, again, means uh, the Lord come. And it may be interesting, you know, we, we hear this word a lot. There's Maranatha music, there's Maranatha churches. And it's thrown around a lot, but this is really the only occurrence in all of Scripture of this word Maranatha. It's the it's the final greeting in this in this third to last verse of First Corinthians. And again, it is a call for the Lord to come. But Maranatha is very important. Maranatha really is the answer to all the problems that Paul discusses in this letter. It is the answer really to all the problems that we face, all our prayer requests. The answer to them is Lord come. All the problems faced by this. Immature and worldly church, the answer is, Lord, come. It's really an answer, really, to all the problems that we face in this fallen world. And if you remember some of our earlier sermons, we mentioned that the underlying problem in the Corinthian church was what we called over-realized eschatology. And that's, that's a big word, but basically what they, were, what they were acting as if this was a time of glory. This was a time when Christ returned. This is a time when everything is going to go our way. That we're going to be the big shots. We're going to be on the top of the world. We're going to get the glory. Everyone's going to admire us. <clears throat> and this is what they wanted. And this is just the same problem that we have as the modern church. This is what we want. We want to be relevant. We want to be admired. We want to be influential. And this is especially a problem when Christian organizations seek political power, seek worldly, earthly power. We see it both on the, the left and on the right. Right, there are churches that will tell you from the pulpit. I see it. It's amazing. They'll tell you specific candidates to vote for. I got in the, in the mail this, um, you know, supposedly Christian voter guides that they put in the bulletins. I took them and I threw them in the garbage. I'm not going to give you bulletins. I teach you what the Bible teaches. I, uh, the biblical principles is what I will give you. And, and they definitely affect politics. There's no doubt about it. It's not like we're, we're completely on a different realm. But you guys can make your own decisions. You can show how you uh, apply those. You don't need someone telling you specifically who to vote for. See, see, our allegiance is, is first and foremost to Christ. Our allegiance is first and foremost to his word. Not political party, not a political politician. And the temptation to a theology of, of, of glory is so strong. Because we all want to be relevant. We all want to be admired. We all want to be influential. But the truth is, now is not the time of glory. Now is the time of the cross. Now is the time of service. Now is the time, if the Lord wills, the time of suffering. Now, this doesn't sell much, right? When, when, when you go to church and you tell you you're going to be glory, you want to hear that. If they tell you you're going to suffer, you don't want to hear that. You want to hear that you're going to have your best life now. But I'm sorry, that is not what time we have now. And this theology of glory was the root cause of all the problems that the Corinthians had, that we see in this 
letter. And as we often mention, we live in, in this unique time, this, this, this time in history between Christ's first coming and his second coming. This is a time when sin has been defeated. Satan has been bound. He's no longer able to, to, to deceive nations. And our future glory is secure. It has already been purchased. It is guaranteed. It is as certain as if we were experiencing it now. But it is not yet here. It is not yet here. We live in this time known as the already not yet. We already are redeemed new creations in Christ. But we do not yet have all the benefits of this reality. We will. It is guaranteed. But they are not ours yet. And this is a difficult state to be in. This is a difficult time. This fallen world is hard. Living in this fallen world is hard. There is much pain. There is much tragedy. There is much evil. There is much sin. There is much frustration. And this world beats us down. And it is perfectly appropriate. It is good for us to long for Christ's return. It's appropriate for us to cry out, Maranatha, Lord, come. Like Nathan preached last Sunday, Lord, come. Every single Christian, we should long for the Lord's return. We should be like Nathan's father, jumping out of bed. The Lord has come. The trumpet bands. Jesus is coming. We're not going to say, no, no, I don't want Jesus to come yet. I want to live. I haven't gotten married. I haven't had children. My friends, there is nothing that you will give up now that will not be that much better in glory when Christ returns. So there is nothing that you can do on this earth that is worth, that, that you say, no, I just want to wait a little bit. If Christ comes, it will pale. Everything will pale in comparison. Now there's one part of this personalized handwritten greeting that, that doesn't really fit with the rest of the passage. It doesn't align with these images of sweet and, and intimate fellowship. The, the tone abruptly changes. And we see this in the first part of verse 22. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. See, Paul's actually describing a curse. He's casting a curse on him. And it seems out of place. Paul's been talking about intimate fellowship. He's been talking about this connection between all these Christians and the various greetings. And then he bestows this blessing, this benediction. He's affirming his general, genuine love for the church in, in this letter's final verse. <clears throat> so why then is Paul giving this stern warning? Even more bewildering, why is he pronouncing a curse? Right in the immediate preceding verse to, to the benediction, the blessing, Paul is proclaiming a curse on some of these people in the Corinthian church. What is going on here? Well, set, shed some light on this. I think it would be helpful if we took a look at the passage in Acts that we read as our New Testament reading. This is Paul's time in, in Corinth. So if you, would, if you would turn in your Bibles back to Acts 18, and that's found on page 927 if you're using the Pew Bible. So this is, again, this is describing Paul's time in Corinth. And take a look specifically at Acts 18, verses 5 and 6. We're going to look at that. So in Acts 18, 5 and 6, we read, When Silas and Timothy arrived at Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So, so as was, was Paul's custom, when he entered into a city, he would preach the gospel. He would go first to God's people. He would go to the synagogue. And there every Sabbath, he would reason with them, try to persuade them in the synagogue. He would try to persuade them that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And the reason he went first to the synagogue 
was because these were the people who knew the ways of God. They were familiar with the covenants. They were familiar with the law. They would have had the, the background necessary to recognize Jesus as the fulfillment to the patriarchs, the fulfillment of the prophets. They knew sacred scripture. And all of sacred scripture points to Christ. So when they came there, they, they had all the pieces. And all he had to say, this is the answer. Christ is the answer to all the things you knew. That's why he went. And given this tremendous advantage and blessing, it's natural to expect that those who are worshiping Yahweh in the synagogue, it's natural to expect that they would be the first ones to embrace the good news of the gospel. They would be the first ones to worship Jesus Christ. But how was Paul received in the synagogue? And this reaction was not unique to Corinth. This is really a reaction he's seen in all the cities. Well, verse 6 tells us that they opposed and reviled him. Now, we don't usually use that word revile. Revile does not mean just oppose. They could oppose him and say, you know, we, we, we don't think that, 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 we don't agree with you. There's a civil way of opposing, but reviled, this is someone who criticized an abusive and angry, a mocking and insulting, a harsh manner. And why? <clears throat> why did they oppose Paul? Why did they react so harshly against Paul? Was it because of Paul himself? They just didn't like Paul? You know, did, did Paul offend him? Was there a problem with Paul? I don't think so. So I think if Saul of Tarsus, if Paul, prior to his road to Damascus encounter with Jesus, I think if he would have visited the Corinthian synagogue, I believe he would have been welcomed with open arms. The leaders of the synagogue, they would have been highly honored to have Saul of Tarsus, a person who, who had studied under Gamiel himself, the most famous of all the rabbis, have them speak to him, they would have been honored. They would have been amazed. Now, they didn't oppose Paul personally. They opposed his message. They opposed the gospel. They opposed Jesus Christ himself. Let me give you an illustration. Back in the, in the 1970s, world-famous folk singer Bob Dylan. I used to be a big Bob Dylan fan. Well, Bob Dylan had, at the height of his fame and popularity, supposedly had a born-again experience. I don't know if it's true or whether it's genuine or not. But for a time, Dylan stopped writing secular songs. And he wrote only songs about faith and only songs about Jesus. I remember the third day uh, recorded one of his songs. And I remember hearing a story that during one of his concerts, instead of playing all the songs that made him famous, his secular songs, Dylan would only play Christian songs. And between the songs, he would then preach to the audience. Needless to say, this didn't go over too well with his audience. These crowds, loyal Bob Dylan fans, they booed him. They demanded their money back from the concert. See, their hostility was not against the singer-songwriter Bob Dylan, against himself. They were, it was against Jesus. It was against the gospel. They expected and they wanted secular songs. They did not want Jesus. That was their hostility. <clears throat> we see the same thing in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel, when the people, they reject Samuel's leadership. Samuel was their judge and, and, and prophet. And they demand a king. They say, we want a king. We want to be like everyone else. And Samuel takes this rejection personally. He's discouraged. And do you remember what the Lord said to Samuel? In 1 Samuel 8, 7, the Lord tells Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. They rejected the Lord. They weren't rejecting Samuel. In John chapter 15, Jesus gives this warning to his disciples. He tells them the servant is not greater than their master. He says, if they've persecuted me, they will persecute you. It's guaranteed. See, there's a hostility. There is a hostility between the world and God. Jesus' own words, John 15, 19, said, if you were of the world... 
the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We need to understand this. Therefore the world hates you. The world hates Christ. And if you stand for Christ, the world will hate you. And it doesn't matter how winsome we are. And we should be winsome. We should strive to be as inoffensive as possible. And it doesn't matter how nuanced we are in our declaration of God's truth. And we should. We should choose our words wisely. We should not uh, paint with an overly broad strokes. And it doesn't matter how much sin and error we overlook. And we should be gracious. We should be kind to all, knowing that every error is not a hill worth dying for. But regardless, regardless of all our efforts to live peacefully with all, there is still an irreconcilable hatred between the world and God. And the world will only accept complete surrender, will only accept complete capitulation to its worldview. And this is why as Christians, if we surrender something to the anti-God culture, we can never give enough. hundred years ago, the church faced intense pressure to comply with the, the tenets of modernism. Just reject the supernatural, the, the, the mythological aspects of Christianity, as they, they called them. You know, give up the virgin birth. That's not that important. Give up the resurrection. Science tells us that virgins do not give birth. It's impossible. Science tells us that people do not raise from the dead. Once you're dead, you're dead. See, the strength of Christianity, according to them, is the moral teachings. The, the moral teachers, the, and these things just get in the way. It makes it difficult for, for the intellectual to accept Christianity, to accept the essence of, of a Christian moral moralism if you have these supernatural, these, these mythology, as they call them, in there. Now, did the culture stop when the church gave up supernaturalism and just said all we have is we're going to focus on Christian morality? No, absolutely no. Not. Now the morality, especially the sexual morality, but all the morality that we see in the, in the Bible... This is now considered immoral by the world's standards. And it doesn't stop there. No matter how much you try to give up, the church will, the, the world will continue to want more. It's humorous, if it wasn't so sad, to see liberal Christianity falling all over itself to try to comply with the culture's demands. But you're always going to be behind the curve. No matter what you give up, they want more and more and more. There can be no peace. And notice the way that Paul reacts to this opposition and hostility. Right? He receives in the Corinthian synagogue. Does he, does he apologize? Does he say, I'm, I'm sorry, I, wasn't, I, was, I, was, I was being harsh? I was being insensitive? Does he try to contextualize his, his message? I, I'm going to make it a little easier for you to understand. Let me, let me take out some of these, these harsh things about, about Jesus and, and, and try to make it easier for you to understand, to, for unbelievers to digest. Does he seek to be more winsome? And remove any and all offense? No. We're told in Acts 8.6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garment and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Paul walks away. He didn't beg them. He didn't beg them to listen. He shook out his garment, which is basically saying, I am done with you. You're on your own. I've done my part. If you don't want the good news, that's fine. I will take it to someone who wants to hear. <clears throat> this is the same message we heard in our gospel reading this morning from Luke 10, when Jesus sent out the 72. Jesus told them when they enter a town <clears throat> and they are received to take the food that's given to them and, the bless and, and to be a blessing to that town, to heal the sick, proclaim the kingdom of God is in hand. But if they're rejected, they're not to stay. They're not to, to be begging and pleading. They're to leave the town, wiping the dust off their feet. 
and declare God's judgment. And this, this is so contrary. So contrary to our, our modern evangelism. Our, our minds are so seeped, I think, with, with capitalism and, and free market thinking that it's infected our evangelism. We think God and the gospel is a product, a product to be marketed. And our job is to be God's salesman somehow. We're, we're to make the sale for the gospel. So whatever we need to do to make that sale, that's what we do. We use tricks. We use gimmicks. We use manipulation. We use promotions to sell the gospel. I've heard of a church that actually offers a money-back guarantee on your tithe. Right? If you're not blessed by your tithe, you get, we'll give you your money back. Satisfaction guarantee. Just like any other product. Any other product. And think about advertisements. Think about commercials. Do these advertisements and commercials, they primarily sell the product? No. They primarily, they primarily sell an illusion. They primarily sell a lifestyle. You, you drive this car. You drink this beer. You use this gadget. And you will have the perfect life. Where religion does the same thing. Join our church and you can have your best life now. It's guaranteed. But this is not what Paul did. This is not how Jesus instructs his church. See, we are witnesses. We are not salesmen. A witness simply testifies to the truth. The witness does not attempt to persuade, does not attempt to manipulate, does not have any agenda other than to clearly communicate this truth as clearly and accurately as possible. And as Christians, we are simply to proclaim the gospel. We cannot make someone believe the truth we proclaim. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is entirely of the Lord. And God uses the truth we proclaim to bring his elect to himself. And this is, this is not an immediate and one-time action. It may take years of proclaiming the truth before a conversion takes place. And we may not see any discernible changes whatsoever in unbeliever. But God is moving that person ever so subtly, if that person is elect, ever so subtly toward faith. And it may be multiple people, the testimony of multiple people that finally brings in the harvest. It's not just one time. It's not one thing you say and this person is going to be saying a prayer and be becoming uh, saved. Now also, this is, this is the part that we don't like. But God also uses the truth we proclaim to harden those who are not his elect. See, for, for the person who, who persists in rebellion against God, refusing his gracious offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, foolishly believing that they don't need grace, foolishly believing that they're okay on their own, trampling on the Son of God, blaspheming the Holy One, our testimony leaves them without excuse. So they can never claim, they can never claim when they're standing before the Lord that, that I didn't know. They can, they can never claim, God, you're not fair. You're judging me for something I don't know. They can't do this because of our witness. Because we have shared the gospel with them. See, our witness is never, is never wasted. Even when it hardens, it reveals God's righteousness and his justice. God is glorified even regardless. So we, we, we have no, no pressure on us. It will accomplish God's purpose. All we have to do is be witnesses. We don't have to make the sale. And it's so freeing for us. Let's return now to our 1 Corinthians 16 passage. This little detour into Acts 18 and, and Luke 10. This gives us the context for verse 22. Again, verse 22 says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So this curse, this curse is not uh this does not apply to all unbelievers. No. It doesn't believe all unbelievers. Now all unbelievers, even so they don't consciously recognize all unbelievers actually have no love for the Lord. They may claim they love the Lord, 
But in reality, they love a Lord of their own making. They love a, a God that they have defined, not the God of the Bible. But as we, we just heard from Jesus' own words in John 15, the world hates Jesus. And this is the reason why they hate us. <clears throat> but the curse that Paul proclaims here in verse 22 does not apply to all believers. As I've mentioned many times in this pulpit, the unbeliever is our mission field. And yes, while they live under in unbelief, they are under God's just condemnation. But they are not necessarily cursed. They may, in fact, be very blessed. Blessed because they recognize their need. They haven't been saved yet. They, they, haven't, they haven't received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone. But they recognize that there's a need. They know that they cannot save themselves. They know that they are lost. They know that they were without hope. And then the blessing that they hear is the gospel. The gospel message, the blessing of the testimony, that is what we share. The reality that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And the unbeliever is not, in general, is not the subject of this curse. Remember the context in Acts 18 and Luke 10 was the gospel being taken to God's people, taken to those people who are part of the covenant community. The 72 were not sent to pagans. They were sent to Jewish communities. Paul's teaching in the synagogues was to the Jewish community, the people of the covenant. And this letter is not addressed to unbelievers. It is written to the church. Chapter 1, verse 2, the greeting says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Every place. See, that includes us. This letter is actually written directly to us. So this curse that we read in verse 22, it is a warning. It's a stern warning to the church. And it's a warning to us. It's a warning to those who are part of the covenant community but are not believers. Part of the covenant community but are not believers. It's a warning to those who are part of the church for any other reason other than the love of Christ. Think about it. If you're in church for any other reason than that you really love Christ and you want to hear about Christ, then you are part of the people of this church that this curse is warning. My friends, this is where we see a real danger in our modern American church, where we attempt to make church seeker-friendly. We attempt to make it attractive to the unbeliever. And there, there are many practical, there are many worldly benefits to being in a church. And it's very possibly, and it, it, sadly, it's, it's, it's it's far too common for a person to think they're a Christian because they like all the trappings of a church, but they have no genuine affection for or even knowledge of the biblical Jesus. This is very dangerous. And likewise, there are leaders, leaders in many churches that have no genuine affection for Jesus. To them, it's just a job. To them, it's a racket. These people are not true shepherds. These people are hirelings. And each one of us, each one of us needs to examine ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, why am I here? Why am I in church? Right? Is it because of the spectacular building that we have? And we do have really nice front doors, by the way. That, that, is, that is cool. Is it because of all the cool people that we have here? People like me? Is it because of, of uh, business contacts that we can make? Is it because we like to be entertained by lively music? Is it here practical sermons that will, that will make me happier in life? No, none of these things. None of these things are necessarily bad. But if these are the main reason and not a love of Christ, then you are in big trouble. Then we are being deceived. And there's a, there are great benefits of being in a small church like Northgate. 
See, we're not impressive by anyone's standards. We can't compete. Again, we can't compete with practically anyone on, on the basis of size or power or prestige. The only thing we have here is Christ. It's only Christ. That's it. That's the only thing we bring to the table is Christ, the love for Christ. And the question is, is that enough? And I'm not saying that big and impressive churches don't have Christ. Many certainly do. I know many that do. But what I am saying is that there's a temptation. There's a temptation for us to look to something, to look to anything beyond Christ, and then be deceived. See, the Corinthians wanted to be impressive by the world's standards. They wanted to be wise according to the values of this fallen world. And Paul continues to have to remind them that Christ is enough. Christ is all you need. And you are blessed. You are blessed if you are unimpressive because you know you need Christ. And I think that this can really summarize the entire message of this first letter to the Corinthians. It's Christ is enough. Christ is enough. And don't seek to be impressive in yourself. Seek Christ. Seek him alone. And this is a message that's just as relevant for us today in the 21st century American church as it was for the Corinthians. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we seek so many things other than you. Lord, we look to ourselves, we look to our comfort, we look to our power, our prestige. And Father, I pray, I pray for everyone who hears my voice, I pray for myself that Christ is enough, that we recognize that you are all we need. You are more than enough. And Father, I pray that you will fill us with that, with that hunger, that hunger and thirst to cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. That we will be looking, that we will be longing for the day that you come and that you make all things new, that you remove all these distractions and all these sins that we have in this fallen world, and we can see you perfect, we can see your face, and be the way we are meant to be. We pray it in his name. Amen.